Romans chapter 7, 7, beginning at verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during his life? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. All glory be to him who wrote these blessed words. You can never study or meditate upon the book of Romans too much because it pays rich dividends to every learner who approaches it in humility, searching for pearls of God's truth. Of this great letter to the Romans, Chapter 7 is one of the greatest chapters. It's a chapter that is often misunderstood, a chapter often in controversy, but it need not be. Its truths are clear and waiting for us. And whoever will enter into this chapter can find in his own life, by the application of it, happiness, liberation, from many of the things that vex the Christian life. This word holds forth rich promise to you. Without this paragraph, for example, of the book of Romans, we would not fully understand why the Christian Bible has been bound as it has with the Old and New Testaments together. This paragraph shows us why. Now in chapter 5 of the book of Romans, which we dealt with some time ago, Paul unfolded the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And immediately he foresaw some objections which could be raised to that truth. And there were two of them. One he answers in chapter 6 and the other in chapter 7. Chapter 6, he dealt with the objection, well, if salvation is such a free gift, entirely apart from what we do, then does that not increase our sinning and set us loose to do whatever we want to do? No, by no means, said Paul in chapter 6. The whole direction of salvation is toward holiness. In fact, we are slaves 
to righteousness. Then the other objection remains, and it is taken up here. That is, if salvation is such a free gift, entirely apart from man's actions, what becomes of the law? Is the law to be despised and forsaken? Now we know that men have a tendency in their relationships with God and with each other to establish law so that they can govern and understand what is happening between them. That law may become for them very well a form of bondage. And they may come to see the law that exists between themselves and God as a way of achieving salvation. And chapter 7 says that God has a better way. And so we could say from this paragraph that God seeks a special spring for Christian service. God seeks a special spring for Christian service. Now that truth is summarized most succinctly in verse 4. Likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now this is just like Paul. This is his characteristic method, which is to state a truth in one verse as a kind of a summary verse, and then to work it out and develop it. In this case, the verse comes in the middle. But what precedes and what follows is a developing of the one summary truth in verse 4. In fact, verse 4 is a kind of a summary of the whole Christian life. Someone says to you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You can point them to Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. Now you can see how much Paul is into this verse by a very nice uh, shift that takes place in it. For he says, starts out talking about you. You have died so that you may belong. And then he shifts to we. At the end he says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. He is becoming so deeply and emotionally involved in this truth that he sees it not simply as academic for his hearers, but as something in which he too is very much engaged. So let's ask the question, what is this spring of service that God seeks and which is described in verse 4? Well, God's looking for a service that is freed from legalistic striving. Free from legalistic striving. And that's, uh, we're just looking now at verse 4 as kind of the central place of this whole paragraph. Look at that first word, likewise. That's pointing back to the marriage illustration, which took place in verses 1 to 3. Likewise. In other words, Paul's saying there's an analogy with marriage law. And the law is there that while both mates are alive, the marriage ordinances of God are in effect. But if one dies, of course, the law is not set aside. The law is not broken. The law is simply irrelevant. It no longer applies when one party is dead. Now, this is a very important point because it helps us to understand the whole chapter if we get this. The law is not contravened. It is not overthrown. 
But the law, in fact, is observed when a person is free from it because a death has taken place. Now, we must not learn our marriage law from this passage alone. For here, God is speaking to us, not speaking of the concessions which he has made to human weakness in divorce. Those are described in the book of Deuteronomy and Matthew and in 1 Corinthians. And they would also be part of any study of the Bible's meaning of marriage. The primary point of this paragraph is not to teach us about marriage as such, but to teach us about the fact that law, without being overthrown, can still be set aside in a particular case because death has come and it no longer binds the living partner of marriage. Then he goes on to say, my brethren. And of course, whenever Paul, every word in the Bible is precious, and whenever Paul uses this word brethren, which is not often, you always want to be alert to the truths that are coming because they are, this is a warning word that I'm going to say something very important as if a, a pastor who's been with his people a long time might at the end of a sermon, particularly impassioned, he might lean over and say, beloved congregation. Well, you know that he has something on his heart. This is Paul, brethren. Truth is coming. It is truth which sanctifies the believer. We, we always think that experiences will sanctify us, but God tells us that truth sanctifies us. Jesus prayed saying, sanctify them through thy truth. And if you would be sanctified, if you would be holy, you need to get hold of more and more of God's truth. That's what makes you Christ-like. Brethren, you have died to the law. What he means here, and the word in the original is a very violent word, meaning you have been put to death violently. This is, is too weak. You have died to the law. You've been put to death. And the reason that violent word is there, that our Savior was violently killed. And when he died, all who are believers in him died with him. You died with him, and I died with him. Whoever's put his faith in Christ has died with Christ. And therefore, since we died with him, we are dead to the law. We're like that marriage partner now. One has died, and therefore the other is free. And we died to the law, therefore the marriage law no longer applies to us. We were once bound to the law, Every person who is outside of Christ is bound to keep the law. He is under the law. He will be judged by it. He is under its slavery. He is captive to it. Because while the law makes a great insistence upon his behavior, the law does nothing to help him. In fact, as long as we are under the law, the law stirs up our sinful passions. It causes us to sin. The very thing which it says not to do, it incites us to do. As you would say to a little child, now don't do that. That's the very first thing. 
He'll be apt to do. And that's precisely what the law does. But here we are told that by virtue of our faith in Christ, because we have become one with him, we have died to the law. We are out from under its captivity. And we are free then for a new union. And this took place through the body of Christ. That means his flesh. Our salvation is not an idea, not just a, a sentimental feeling. It's an actual fleshly thing that took place in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ on a certain day at a certain hour. He had placed himself under the law. We read in Galatians 4.4, 4, he was born of a woman made under the law. He was baptized to be under the law. He kept the law perfectly. He was utterly subject to the law of God. And then, because he was, the law measured out to him all of the punishment which it brings upon human sin. The law demanded his death, and he died to it and finished its captivity over him and over all who are in him. So we have died to the law through the body of Christ, that is, through the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when you're thinking about your salvation, do not think starting with your own problems or with your own decision or with your own conversion. That's a part of it. When you're thinking of what's taken place with you, start with what God has done. It's something that happened in Christ that has saved us, not something basically that begins with us. Now, we died to the law through the body of Christ. Now what is the effect of this liberation? Well, when a surviving partner free from the bonds of marriage, they are then able to enter into a new union without guilt or without sin of any kind. And what Paul is saying here by the Spirit is that the law, as a covenant of works, as a means of being saved, is over with. The law in the sense of do this and you shall live is entirely behind us. Now that does not mean that the law is to be ignored. Some Christians have therefore gone on to say, I think extremely and misguidedly, though I respect the opinion, they've gone on to say, well then we have utterly no concern for the law of God since we are dead to it. That's not what it's saying. We are dead to it as a means of salvation but the law of God remains in its place. In fact, the whole purpose of our Christian life is to enable us to keep the law of God. We read, therefore, in Romans 8, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us. Our Lord came and taught us that we are to that not one of his commandments was to be abolished, that we are to be earnest in the observing of them, not as a way of salvation, nor as a means of sanctification. You do not keep the laws of God in order to be holy. 
Let that point be very clear. The law can neither save nor sanctify. But in the sanctification process, as we are being made holy by the love of Christ, the end product is a man or a woman whose life reflects the law of God. That's the end product of that life. And so we never despise or speak meanly of or ignore the commandments of God. Rather, they are our delight and our meditation day and night. But the meaning of this first clause is then that the service God seeks is free from legalistic striving. Have you examined your life in this matter? Perhaps you know you were saved by grace, you know that there was nothing you did, that your salvation was a free gift, but you think now that to go on in the Christian life is a matter of legalistic striving and of keeping the law of God. And I say to you, no, that's not the service God seeks. He's looking for something else. And that's described as the verse goes on. We're still in verse 4. Here comes the fire of divine love so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Who is this other, of course? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has been raised from the dead. To him who's been raised from the dead, you are now in such a deep and personal union with him that it is like being married to Christ. Have you ever thought of yourself as the bride of Christ? That's what it's described here. Married to him who's been raised from the dead. Oh, I know that it's not a perfect analogy. No one in Scripture is, but it's a God-given one. It doesn't go far enough because our union with Christ is far deeper than our union with our mate. Here we can only have our mate with us a certain part of the day or of the week. We must go our separate ways, but Christ said, I will be with you always. And someday each one of us will stand to bid farewell to our mate. But with Christ we have a permanent union that goes on and on. Nevertheless, there is a blessed truth here that we are in this union with Christ. We are under his authority. As a woman comes under the authority of her husband and takes his name, so have we taken that magnificent and dignified and honorable and glorious name upon ourselves. We've prayed, write thy new name upon my heart. You have his name. You're under his authority as his wife. To be under the authority of Christ means that you have his care and protection. Just as a woman finds security in the providing and earning power of her husband and gets great joy out of being loved by the same man who meets her needs, 
so does the Christian rest secure under the authority of the divine bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have his initiative. It is he who has wooed us, not we ourselves. He came and sought us and drew us to be his. We have his privileges. If Christ is privileged to be seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, we are seated there with him. Yes, our feet are on the ground, but our heads are in the heavens with Christ. We have his privileges. Does he have access to the Father? So do we. Does he have ministering angels serving about him and meeting his needs? So do you. You forget about the angels. They are your ministering spirits. They are around you because you're married to Christ. And you have intimate love with him. The whole book of canticles in the Old Testament, Song of Solomon, is a description of the love that exists between the believer and his Lord. Think of that great love in all of its depth and warmth. In fact, in one sense, the whole purpose of the Christian life is that you may know that you are loved by Christ. Oh, what a love it is. It is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. What a love it is. These two shall be one flesh, we read, and that love that exists between Christ and his bride is an intimate communion of the deepest order. Are you giving Christ time to tell you that he loves you? Are you with him enough so that he can say to you, you are mine, my beloved? Are you quiet enough with him to hear him whisper terms of endearment and commitment and love to you? You're his bride, married to Christ. What then is the kind of service that God seeks? It's not the one of legalistic striving, but it is the service that arises out of this divine loving relationship of the husband and the wife. That's the new model that is given here, and the purpose comes as it is fashioned by the Holy Spirit. Listen to the purpose. That you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. There's the divine purpose that this union has come into being, that there may be offspring from it, that there may be fruitfulness from it. Now this is the Christian life, has a whole new purpose. And the purpose is to bring forth fruit to God. Now the worldly man, he does not have this purpose. He does not even understand this purpose. The worldly man lives for himself, and to bring forth fruit to himself. But the man in Christ lives to bear fruit to God because he's in a, a loving relation to Christ 
and Christ plants the seed within him, which by the Holy Spirit begins to produce a glorious fruit. And this is the spring of Christian service. This new life in the Spirit, which prompts us because we, we're thankful to Christ, we love him, we want to honor him, we want to glorify him, our motive is not legalistic striving, but our motive is simply returning to Christ all that he's done for us. That is the spring of true Christian service. The motive for the believing life and the serving life is not even holiness. Holiness is itself a byproduct. The motive is to enjoy and glorify our divine lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the holiness will care for itself. Now what fruits are given? Just use your imagination a bit and think of all the great products that come from the spring of Christian service. Well, for one thing, the law now, which was external to us, which was written on the tables of stone and was outside of us as a standard bearing down upon us, has now become internal. And the law within us is written on our hearts as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. I will put my law within them and write it upon their hearts so that now a man or a woman in Christ does what the commandments call for because deep within him there is the longing to do what God wants him to do. It is internal. Now that's a miracle to take those laws that were etched in stone and which the human heart ever fights against and longs to break and put those laws on my inner heart. That's a miracle, but that's a fruit of Christian service. Another is my character. Because when the, I'm walking with Christ as my husband, and he's out of his love moving me, character qualities like him begin to develop in me. Not that I'm striving to be perfect, but I'm looking at Christ and imitating him and following his commands. And more and more my character begins to resemble his. And then there's a holiness that develops. Not because I sought it, but because it came. It was the product of a life that was lived for the glory of God. And good deeds began to come. I found my joy in Christ spilling over into acts of mercy and love for other people. There was a harvest of righteousness that came from my hands without my even trying. And I found that with this new spring of Christian service, all my problems look different to me. I now could face them with liberty and rejoicing. 
instead of groaning under them or complaining about my problems, I began to see them as means of growth and challenges to faith. And I found that as I was growing older in Christ, it became more and more natural to follow him. Did you ever notice the person who grows old in the world gets worse and worse because the voice and call of God become of Satan upon him becomes stronger and stronger. But the person who's in Christ, the older he gets, the holier he gets. A remarkable testimony to the reality of the Christian life. And every one is a bride of Christ, every Christian. You are, and you are, you have a fruit that is peculiarly yours to bear. For Christ is your husband and brings forth seed from you. And every Christian is called to bear a kind of fruit which he or she alone can bear. Without bearing fruit, you're not a Christian. If there is no product of your life, no issue from your marriage to Christ, you're not joined to him by faith. And so do you see the law written in your hearts? Do you see character changing? Do you see holiness developing? Do you see the harvest of righteousness? Do you see the aging process bringing also the holiness of God? These are the fruits of Christian service. You see, I think the trouble with our living out the Christian life is we don't realize how full and deep it is the chief thing is to know that you are united to Christ, married to him, to know that. Then you don't serve any longer out of guilt. Then you no longer have fear of death or of judgment. Then you can no longer bring yourself back under the law. I find Christians doing this, putting themselves under the law. They believe themselves to be saved and they sin. Then they put themselves back under the law, under condemnation, thinking if they can keep the law, they will be forgiven. Don't do that. Simply go to Christ and repent of your sin and ask for his forgiving grace. But you are dead to the law. You can't come back under it as a means of salvation. No, you're married to Christ. Some of you... I fear, are still under the law. You're captive to its demands. You're trying to fulfill it. You want to be moral. You want to be respectable. I commend that. You want to be moral? You want to have character? Yes, you do. The only way to morality is to come to Christ, to be united to him, to die to that old external law and to find the spring of his love issuing in the white flower of morality in your own life. That's the shortest path, in fact, the only path to Christian service. May we pray.
blessed and gracious God. We rejoice in your goodness, in giving to us such a wondrous way of serving. Beyond the call of the law, in the arms of Christ. So move in our hearts, Lord, that we may be well instructed and faithful to carry out our love and service to him who died for us, even Christ our Lord. Amen.